Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your word we have all things necessary uh, for life and godliness, uh, for salvation and relationship with you, our living God. Now, Father, we pray as we come now and over the next few weeks to look at a feature of our life together, uh, your provision of pastors and teachers to your people, that we would be taught by your word, that we would grow in our knowledge of your will and be equipped to live together as your people whose lives are fruitful in doing the good that honours you. Help me to speak your word truthfully and faithfully in my weakness and help us all to receive it with faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we are embarking on a four-week series about pastors and how to relate to and care for them. And, of course, a pastor speaking to his congregation about these things clearly needs to provide some justification. Uh, first of all, because it seems so self-indulgent just talking about yourself. And secondly, because it's a topical series. Uh, while they have their place, it's always preferable to be systematically working through books of the Bible for that means that God gets to set the agenda, confronting us from his word with issues we may not want to think about, but he wants us to think about. And of course, when we're working through books of the Bible, we always have, in a sense, the fuller context for what God is saying in his word. And so it's easier to test whether what the preacher is saying is what God has said or the preacher's own ideas, which won't do you any good. Uh, and uh, thirdly, working through books also disciplines our thinking so that we maintain the proportions of Scripture, saying a lot about what God says about and saying not much about what God doesn't say much about. By contrast, looking at a topic, trying to gather together what Scripture says about some particular issue increases the opportunity for selective treatment, ignoring some verses and emphasising others it increases the risk of misrepresentation by taking what's set out of context and it runs the risk of making the word of God the servant of some particular human agenda, which is an abomination. And, of course, those risks are heightened where a pastor talks about how you relate to and care for pastors. Such a series could easily be used to serve and promote his own interests or those of his group, not yours and not the faithful teaching of God's word. Uh, so we all need to proceed with caution. I, to be faithful to God's word as I seek to apply it in relation to the work of pastors in churches today, and you to be determined to test all things. And come and talk if you hear things you think are dodgy or need more explanation or you just have questions. But despite the risk, we do need to talk about pastors and how to relate to and care for them. And let me give you three reasons. Firstly, you're in the process of calling a senior pastor. Now is a good time to think about the, what expectations you have of a pastor and how you relate to him. And I say him because we're looking for a new senior pastor. But much of what I have to say will be relevant to how you relate to and care for any paid gospel worker, she or he. 
Uh, and we need to think about it because the truth is we've got used to each other. If you're still here, it's because you've decided to tolerate some of my more obvious shortcomings like unreliability with names, sorry Thomas, technologically incompetent, fairly private and of course that's probably a more flattering selection of my failings and I've got used to some of your shortcomings so together we can deal with most of the irritations and disappointments that come along in our relationship but that will be different with whoever you call. You'll have all sorts of expectations about how they'll either be different from or be like me, expectations that may or may not be met. And the person who comes will initially have a pretty steep learning curve in their new role. So there'll be plenty of opportunity to tread on toes, frustrate and create misunderstandings. So it's a good time to think about how scripture teaches us to relate to pastors as pastors. And secondly... Pastors as a group are under pressure at the moment. Again, it's not just pastors, and some of the things I say may well apply to you, especially post-COVID, and especially if you're working in one of those people-facing professions like healthcare. But let's just think of pastors. Valerie Ling is an Australian Christian psychologist who in 2022, as part of her research, surveyed 200 people in senior ministry roles and found that over a third of her respondents had seriously contemplated resignation from their ministries in the last 12 months. And that's not an isolated finding. When she discussed her research with Archie Poulos, the head of ministry, the ministry department at Moore College, and so acquainted with lots of ministers, he said that that finding need not surprise him because, in his words, that's the sort of data that's been coming out probably for the last 15 years from the National Church Life Survey. And that while the situation in his own context, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, had lagged behind the national trend, they too had sadly caught up. So that's over 30%, almost one in three of people in paid church ministry seriously thinking of resigning. For reasons such as in Valerie's research, feelings of loneliness or concern about the impact on their families or work stress. And these are not statistics from elsewhere. At the beginning of the year, I knew three ministers in our own denomination whose ministry was interrupted or finished, two with burnout, one from irreconcilable conflict, and I was in conversation with another who was seriously thinking of stopping the ministry. And we are not a big denomination. Burnout in ministers is a current reality. And in case you're unfamiliar with the term burnout, here is whose definition. Burnout is a syndrome conceptualised as resulting from chronic workplace stress that has not been successfully managed. It is characterised by three dimensions, feelings of energy depletion or exhaustion, increased mental distance from one's job or feelings of negativism or cynicism related to one's job, reduced professional efficacy. Now, it's not classified as an illness, although it may be accompanied by specific diagnoses, but an occupational phenomenon that can occur in a wide range of work settings. But full burnout is awful. It is completely debilitating. And we've experienced the consequences of burnout in our own congregation. 
We know a little of the grief and the cost of burnout in our pastoral team. And it is a cost to have someone who, say, is devoted six to eight years preparing for ministry and training and to be in a position in a congregation where it's growing and there are relationships of trust and then to be unable to continue. That is a significantly costly outcome for congregations and individuals. And so we need to think about it in our context and know how collectively we can work to prevent it. And I say we collectively as a church, firstly because 1 Corinthians tells us if one member suffers, all members suffer with it. We are connected. What happens to one is a concern for us all. And secondly, we need to think about it because burnout is not just a matter for the individual pastor. Now, there are, of course, things we can do individually to help prevent burnout. And these are things we can encourage in each other. And many of you are probably familiar from your own work context with some of them. For example, staying healthy, attending to diet and exercise, getting enough sleep, growing in self-awareness, getting away from the job. Though that can be a bit more difficult for people in ministry jobs where we and our families uh, live where we work and there's often a fine line for us between being a Christian, who we are, and our ministry, what we do. But many of you, if I've said, are probably familiar with these ways of building resilience. But you also know that some of these are easier said than done when life is busy. But it is not just the individual's responsibility. <laughs> As if when somebody burns out amongst us, we can wash our hands of the situation by blaming them for not managing their lives properly or locate the problem solely in the selection and training of pastors. Burnout arises from a mismatch between the worker and the workplace, which for pastors is the congregational, denominational, societal context in which they work. As well as encouraging pastors to practice those things that contribute to good spiritual, mental and physical health and making sure they have the time to do so, we have to think about the environment in which they work about how we relate to them and the expectations we have of them, just as they have to engage in the expectations they have of themselves. Now, Christina Maslach, who has been researching burnout for almost 50 years now, has an illustration to help us see the importance of engaging with the workplace environment, the canary in the proverbial coal mine. Uh, you may remember that for most of the 20th century, that's optimistic, isn't it? Some of you won't remember most of the 20th century at all. But anyhow, uh, for most of the 20th century, 20th century underground coal miners took caged canaries underground to test the air quality <coughs> because canaries are very sensitive to carbon monoxide. If the canary collapsed, it was a sign that the miners should get out and that their workplace had become toxic. And she asked, what would you do if you wanted to keep more canaries singing happily underground, would you try and breed a better, tougher canary? Or would you attend to the environment in which they worked? Well, sadly, the ministerial canaries are dropping off the perch. About one in three, remember, are talking about leaving the ministry in the next 12 months. Should we put all our effort into their training, breeding spiritual and personal resilience, making them tougher canaries, as if it's all up to them? 
Or should we think together about the environment in which they work as they serve the Lord and us with the gifts that he's given them? Now, of course, it will be both, for you can never remove all stresses or difficulties, but we should be thinking together about our contribution to the environment in which our ministers work, how we relate to them and what we expect of them. Burnout in ministry is an issue. So that's the second reason for this series, the pressure pastors are under. But there is a third reason, even as I speak and illustrate about how being a pastor can be a risky enterprise, tell you of the high costs some are paying to serve as ministers, I am hoping that some of you or some of your children will become pastors and full-time workers in making disciples of our Lord Jesus. And if they are your children, I hope, if they have the appropriate gifts and character, you will support them in that calling and not seek to deter them. But at the moment, if you're a parent and you're seeing that cost, you may be hesitant. It is important not just to think about how we should relate to pastors, but to develop a culture in which those whom the Lord raises up for this work, you or those who are close to you, are encouraged to persevere and flourish, to serve with joy, to have a congregational life that is a model of encouragement where we expect of pastors what scripture encourages us to expect of them and we relate to them and to one another as God's word instruct us. So for these three reasons that you are looking for a new pastor, the reality of the high rates of ministerial burnout, our prayers that the Lord would raise up some from amongst us to serve as ministers of the word, I think now is a good time to pause briefly four weeks and think about pastors. And let's start by briefly reminding ourselves of the role of pastors in scripture. And he, it says, that's the Lord Jesus, the ascended Lord Jesus himself, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of God's Son, growing into maturity with a stature measured by Christ's fullness. In Ephesians 4.11, we read that the ascended Lord Jesus gave some to be pastors and teachers. And the particular ministry of pastors and teachers, the one group, not two separate ones, is seen in their titles. For the terms pastor and teacher describe someone by reference to the work that they do. Pastors, pastor, teachers, teach. And their work is important to congregations. So what is the work of a pastor? Uh, We hear pastor as a term with a particular religious role. But for the first here is the term meant shepherd, like the shepherds who were watching their flocks near Bethlehem when Jesus was born. The work of shepherds is to feed, water and protect the sheep to ensure that the flock is healthy and safe. And the first here is new that to be sheep without a shepherd uh, is to be harassed and helpless, distressed and in danger. Pastor was applied by extension to those who had similar responsibilities in Christian groups, those who had the responsibility of making sure the congregation, Christ's flock, was fed, 
nurtured and protected. And so, for example, in Acts 20, the elders of the church at Ephesus are told to shepherd the church of God, which involved overseeing their common life and the particular duty Paul emphasises in Acts is protecting the flock from those who would draw them away from Christ and destroy them, the fierce wolves. In 1 Peter 5, where elders are called to shepherd God's flock, the emphasis is on the manner in which they go about their work. And uh, verse 3, especially on keeping the congregation healthy as followers of the Lord Jesus by being an example to the flock. And 1 Peter reminds us, verse 4, that there is a chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus, the good shepherd. Now, the reference to Jesus as the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, is drawing on the prophecy of Ezekiel 34. And there we get a good description of the work of a shepherd. When Ezekiel describes, firstly, the work the human shepherds, verse 4, their kings and leaders were not doing. They were not strengthening the weak, healing the sick, bandaging the injured, bringing back the strays, or seeking the lost as they exploited their position for their own advantage. And then in verse 15 to 16, the Lord said that he would do himself that work. He would be their shepherd. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. The Lord commits himself to seek the lost, bring back the strays, bandage the injured, strengthen the weak. And this is the work congregational shepherds are in turn to do for they are always under the Lord's authority. The flock's not theirs and they must shepherd at his direction and following his example. (coughs) And we see in Ephesians 4, the provision of the shepherds for his flock is Jesus' provision for the flock's welfare and protection. Congregational shepherds, pastors, are his idea. And Acts tells us they were appointed by the Holy Spirit. And congregations without shepherds, pastors who are diligent and faithful, are exposed to danger. The danger of having arrogant and greedy shepherds who will exploit the flock, or the danger of faithless shepherds who will teach lies that separate the sheep from the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus. In the face of these dangers, pastors are to protect and nurture the flock and they do that in two ways. Firstly, by being examples of a follower of Jesus, as you have heard in 1 Peter and is taught also in 1 Timothy 4. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith and purity. And so pastors have to be and are committed to living a publicly visible life, being an example that can be observed. And secondly, they protect and nurture by teaching in public and private. Teaching which we saw in Ephesians 4 is inseparable from exercising pastoral leadership in a congregation, the one group, pastors and teachers. Now, in being examples and in teaching, the role of pastors and teachers does overlap with that of elders and could even be considered a subset of the eldership because all elders have to be apt to teach and must be examples. But the ministry of elders is not the only ministry of teaching in the New Testament church. 
There's also the ministry of Paul's associates, Timothy and Titus, who are commanded to teach and preach. And so, as you see, verse 13, teaching is a core part of Timothy's ministry in the congregation of Ephesus. Until I come, writes Paul, give your attention to the public reading, and that is of scripture, to exhortation and to teaching. And as Paul comes to finish his race and entrust the ongoing ministry of the gospel to Timothy, he emphasises the centrality of preaching and teaching in that work. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. And these instructions given to Timothy have always been taken as the core instruction for the work of congregational ministers, pastors. So in our system, our employed ministers, however we name them, must share, yes, the character of elders, but they are differentiated by being set aside for this teaching role in recognition of its importance. Set aside to provide and be responsible for the regular teaching diet of our congregational life. And as a mark of the importance of this teaching role, provision is made for its continuation in congregations, instructions not given to the other ministries of Ephesians for like prophecy. Paul commands Timothy that what he's heard from him, Paul, in the presence of many witnesses, he's to commit to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, why is a continuation of the teaching ministry so important for congregations? Let's start again with Ephesians 4. Pastors and teachers share with the other gifts of Christ, verse 12, in equipping other believers for service and the building up of the body of Christ. That is, for both the continuing growth of the church in numbers and in maturity. While the ministries of apostles and prophets were foundational, belonging like the foundation to the beginning of the church, and while the work of evangelists is in the world, the ministry of pastors and teachers continues in the church where their ministry supports the ministry of all, supports your ministry, equipping you for your service with your gifts, an equipping which is God's provision for the building up of the body. And this happens, verses 15 to 16, as each member speaks the truth in love and uses their gifts in loving service. All of us speaking the truth in love and serving is key to the growth of the Lord's church. And we can see how important teaching is when we consider what's involved in being equipped, in each of us being equipped to speak the truth in love. To speak the truth, you have to know the truth of the gospel, the truth of God. Now that is public shared truth, truth entrusted to God's people to be preserved and passed on, but truth that does come from another language, in another language and from another time given in a rich context, the revelation of the Old and New Testament. That truth needs to be taught. Now, not just by pastors, but they're the ones who've been trained and tested. 
And their public teaching supports and sustains all other teaching in the congregation. You're teaching your children. You're teaching one another. And to speak the truth to one another, you actually have to be able to distinguish truth from error so you don't mix them together. And faithful teachers equip us all to do that by passing on the gospel without addition, subtraction or corruption and alerting us to errors. So we need to be taught the truth to speak the truth. And think about love. How can we know what love is and be continually motivated to love? Only by the public teaching of the gospel where we are brought to know Christ's love for us, God's love for us in the death of Christ. And it is this love that is the standard of our love. Love one another, says our Lord, as I have loved you. You have to know how the Lord has loved you. And it's this love that is the motive of our persevering love. We love, writes John, because he first loved us. To love, we must know that love. Oh, and it's in Scripture that we learn the content of love in learning the law of God, of which the command to love our neighbour is a summary. The work of teachers provides the foundation for the work of all of us, equips us to do what we must, speak the truth in love and serve in love, if together we are going to grow as the body of Christ. Teaching is central to the work of making disciples who are to be taught all the Lord commanded us to keep. And so the teaching of what our Lord taught must remain central in our common life if we are to be equipped to be and make disciples. So the work of teachers must remain central to our common life. And the importance of faithful teaching in the church is seen in the emphasis throughout the New Testament letters on maintaining sound teaching in the common life of congregations and rejecting false teaching. And that rejection of error is a theme of a lot of the New Testament. It's a theme of the Corinthian letters, Galatians, Colossians, Thessalonians, the pastorals, 2 Peter, 1 John 2, uh, 2 John, Jude, Revelation 2 and 3. And that rejection of error is a constant need in Christian history and Christian life. So while what pastors and teachers are called to do overlaps with what all Christians should be and do, they carry a particular responsibility to model and maintain the teaching of the truth in our common life, a responsibility for which they will give account to our Lord Jesus, for Jesus' sheep matter to him. They are bought with his own blood. You matter to the Lord Jesus. He wants you nurtured and protected. A summary statement of the importance of the work of pastors and teachers can be seen in Paul's words to Timothy. Pay close attention to your life and your teaching. Persevere in these things, for in doing this you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's extraordinary, isn't it? And a weighty burden. It is salvation that is at stake in faithful shepherding and teaching. The nature of their work means that local pastors are not an optional extra for a congregation. The ministry of the word is essential and for a congregation to lose the faithful teaching of God's word in its midst is to lose Christ 
and to lose its identity as a congregation of Jesus' people. And local pastors can't be substituted for books and YouTube preaching clips, just as local Christian community cannot be substituted for online community. Lack of embodied relationship and anonymity are not an environment that fosters truth or love. Now, that's not saying that when because of illness or other good reason you can't be present in person watching the service of your local church being streamed is wrong. No, no, that's a way of maintaining connection with community you're already a part of. But it is saying that the primary focus of your spiritual nurture throughout your life should be your local church where you can love other believers and be loved and you can test the lives as well as the teaching of those who teach. And because of the importance of teaching and being an example, the work of local pastors and teachers in a congregation should not be confused with or subordinated to other roles, which is a constant battle. But ministers are not Swiss army knives, right, equipped for all tasks. And so pastors and teachers are not administrators. They're not compliance managers. Oh, and yes, they're not counsellors. Now, this might surprise some of you, but counsellors in our modern world are people with special skills and training who work with individuals who've chosen them to solve particular problems. That's the focus of their work, that particular problem, and it's actually a limited relationship, very boundary. The focus of the work of pastors, though, is the flock. Now, that will involve <coughs> working with individuals from time to time, binding up wounds, encouraging the weak. But the focus is the health of the whole which may at times mean making judgments about behaviours and communicating them. And if we are seeing you one-on-one, -on -one, it's actually to teach you the word, to help you apply it to your life and to encourage you to trust and obey your Lord. So don't come to me if you just want to talk to someone because I will want to teach you, okay? So you just have to be ready for that, right? And I'll expect you to do what God says. Okay. Uh, the goal is discipleship, not cure. Now, pastors are not fundraisers responsible for raising the money to keep the church going. And pastors are not the people who grow the church on their own. If you listen to Ephesians 4, <coughs> it's something we're involved in together. All of us involved in together. So, you know, growing the church is either all of us together and never one of us on our own, right? Never. None of us on our own. Now, as a congregation, I think we know this. Know that God gives many gifts to his church, and our life depends on all of us using our gifts, and it's made me grateful to actually serve amongst you. But sometimes, under various pressures, when someone can't do something, there's a tendency to just expect the pastors or the paid staff to take up the slack. But we actually can't, and we're often not equipped to do it. We don't have your gifts, just as you may not have ours. So the role of ministers is to pastor and teach, and that work is central to the health of congregations, 
its public lives lived and teaching given before the congregation. It involves both life and doctrine and so is 24-7 because we are Christians 24-7 and a life of intellectual labour as they seek to understand both the text and the society in which we live. And it carries a burden of responsibility for the lives of God's people and the honour of Jesus in making his truth known. And most pastors I know are very conscious of that burden. And so this means that while all of us are under pressure, ministers are under some particular pressures. Their life and work at the centre of a spiritual struggle as the devil seeks to harass and harm the Lord Jesus' sheep, which means they need the help of their brothers and sisters. For pastors like you are saved sinners. And giving this help is important for the spiritual welfare of each of us. We are safe sinners and and we know, don't we, the damage done when pastors and teachers go off the rails, when they fail to live the life of a follower of Jesus and practice, say, bullying or sexual immorality. We know the discouragement that brings to believers and the damage to Christ's reputation. Think Mark Driscoll or Ravi Zacharias. And we know how destructive it can be when they teach falsely, exploiting the trust in them for greed or power or popularity, where sin goes unrebuked and people think that they're at peace with God while they're still under judgment or they are robbed of assurances by false promises. Think prosperity preachers or those who endorse behaviour God condemns. Now we'll look at what to do then in the last in this series, which I've titled When Your Pastor Stuffs Up, which is inevitable, okay? Uh, But for now, see pastors and their work as both vital, hopefully I've convinced you of that, and vulnerable. So how can we keep them healthy, fulfilling their calling as they should for the good of us all, for their work does affect us all? See, one of the deceits of our individualistic age is thinking we can preserve our faith and vitality as believers in isolation from, independent of, the health of our churches. But that's not true. The Lord Jesus has always been gathering his people into congregations. We live out our Christian lives as members of a gathering of believers. And one of the most important things you can do for your own faith and the faith of your family is to be involved in and contribute to maintaining a healthy church, one committed to living and relating to each other in obedience to the teaching of the Lord Jesus, one that's consistent in its adherence to the faith once for all delivered to the saints, one that is focused on making disciples through the preaching of the gospel. And fundamental to that health is the work of our pastors and teachers. So we all have an interest in thinking about the ways of relating to pastors so that they persevere and grow in their work. Now, hopefully you are convinced of that because that is going to be the theme of the next three weeks. But as I end today, I want to start us thinking about what Scripture says about how we relate to our pastors by introducing the big category under which all our relating should fall and then focus on a particular way of supporting our pastors. And, of course, the big heading 
for the way we should always be treating each other, including pastors, is love. We have to be loving one another. We should be loving one another as Christ loved us. Now, that goes without saying, doesn't it? But it needs to be said, for sometimes some Christians can occasionally treat pastors as the paid help, treat them the way that some treat staff in cafes and shops. They're to serve me, and so I don't have to worry about thinking about them. But love is the test of how you, well, of everything you do, but it's the test of how you speak to and of your pastors and when and how you engage with them, for the Lord Jesus commands love. Loving your pastor could be the title of the whole series and what we will be talking about is how we can love them. And I say that because sometimes being in church is like family. You know, you may have noticed in your children, if not in yourself, but they can be so good outside and then they drop their bundle when they come home and really let you know what they're thinking, right? Sometimes we can treat the church like that. So love is the test. And I want today to finish the talk with the first way you can love your pastor, and that is by praying for them. See, in the New Testament, we see Paul often calling for prayer. So Ephesians 6, after after Paul, verse 18, calls for prayer for all believers as part of our engagement in the spiritual struggle with the spiritual forces of evil, he calls for specific prayers for himself. Pray also for me that the message may be given me when I open my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. He wants them to pray that he will have boldness in making the gospel known even in his chains, suffering already for preaching the gospel. Now if Paul who had seen the risen Jesus and who has shown himself to be a man of extraordinary courage and determination desired such prayer, how much more do your pastors need that prayer? In an age when people can access your sermons online with malicious intent, think of those who trawled through the sermons of City on a Hill to embarrass and remove Andrew Thorburn from the Essendon Football Club board last year. In this kind of age, the temptation on pastors to self-censor is great. But the gospel and the command to repent and confess Jesus as Lord needs to be heard clearly. So pray for boldness for your pastors. Or again, Colossians 4. Here Paul asked both that the Lord would open a door for the gospel, create an opening in individuals and communities for the gospel to be heard, and for help in making that gospel clear, to declare it faithfully. Now, in a world where access to people is difficult and where there is hostility to the idea of God's judgment, which is part of the gospel, pastors need that prayer to make it clear and for a door. Paul asks for prayer. He relies on the prayers of believers. And we see that he considers that prayer of God's people effective in helping him. So consider 2 Corinthians 1. Paul's faced severe trial in Asia, so much so that, verse 8, he said that he despaired of life life itself. But then look at verses 10 to 11. He has delivered us from such a terrible death and he will deliver us. We have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us by your prayers. And then many will give thanks for the gift that came to us through the prayers of many. 
Paul looked to God and the prayers of the Lord's people for help, real help. Or Philippians 1.19, I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Christ. Paul knows the Lord hears the prayers of his people. Prayer is real help. But our prayers for pastors don't just need to be confined to boldness, clarity, opportunity for the gospel. In 1 Thessalonians 5, we actually see Paul's simplest request. Brothers and sisters, pray for us also. It's an invitation to seek God's help wherever that help is needed. And that's what I'd say on behalf of all pastors, all Christian gospel workers. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. And what might you particularly pray for if you're making space in your prayers for your pastors? Now, Peter Orr in his little book, uh, Fight for Your Pastor, (coughs) has a range of suggestions. I'll just run through. Pray for his marriage, if he's married, that he'd be a faithful husband. Pray for his kids, that they grow up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord. Oh, pray that he grow in his love of the saints. Pray grow in his ability to teach God's word, that he'd be kept from error. Pray that he'd be faithful in evangelism. Oh, pray for his humility and his delighting in the Lord. It's a great list. And most of things we should be praying for each other, all of us, all the time. So we do need to talk about pastors. For your calling a new pastor, pastors are under pressure at this time and Lord willing, the Lord will raise up from amongst us more to serve his people in this role. And the work of pastors and teachers by the Lord's arrangement is vital to the health of our congregations, to our congregation, actually to your spiritual health. In encouraging and sustaining our pastors, you are investing in the health the perseverance and the fruitfulness of your own Christian faith. And next week, we'll think about one of the key ways we can encourage our pastors to our own benefit, and that's by listening to them. But for now, pray for us as part of your prayer for all believers. But do pray for your pastors for boldness, clarity, opportunity, faithfulness. For the Lord hears your prayers. It is real help and we need help. Thank you. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you that the ascended Lord Jesus gives us in each other all that we need for growth in godliness and maturity and for growth as the gospel spreads throughout the world. And we thank you also that our ascended Lord Jesus, the chief shepherd, gives to his people pastors and teachers. Our Father, we pray for our own pastors, that you would sustain them and that they would be faithful in teaching and in loving your people. We pray that you would raise up more and more pastors amongst us. And Father, we pray that we would know the fruit of faithful ministerial work in our own lives as we grow in knowledge of your will, grow in understanding of the truth and are spurred on by your word taught faithfully to live lives of love. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.